morning, would you join me in the book of Job? Taking your Bibles, we're headed over to Job chapter 8 for this morning's study. If you need the notes, the notes are in the bulletin. Otherwise, the ushers have some. Just raise your hand, they'll hand that to you. There's a story that's told in the book that's called The Book of Failures that talks about what happened in London in 1978 when there was some issues going on in the public service. And so the military was called in to serve as firefighters. They hadn't been trained in this area. They weren't experts, but they came in and they did a decent job for that few days that they were filling in. There's one story that comes out of their experience. It's January 14th, that winter time of that year when they were filling in, that they got a recall. One of the groups, uh, one of the departments was called in North London to a home where a woman who was uh, an older woman had the proverbial problem, her cat was stuck up in a tree. And so these military men came and, you know, one of them suggested we shoot it. Um, That didn't go over well at all, okay? But that was his military mindset. And so then they did the rescue, and quite frankly, they were commended for their rescue. They did such a great job. The woman was so excited. She insisted that they come in, they drink tea with her. No, we have to get back to the fire department. We have jobs to do. No, I insist. So they went in, had tea. Wonderful time, wonderful conversation. But when they pulled out, they committed the worst thing possible. They ran over the cat. (laughs) Hey. So they got, they got press. They got in a book on the book of failures. Coming to rescue and they ended up killing the animal. That reminds me of the book of Job. The friends come to help Job out. Job has three friends. They're coming to help him out, to rescue him in the middle of the trial. They're running him down. They are absolutely trampling on him. Let me see if you're familiar, unfamiliar with the story. Let's back up and just join. God and, God and Satan have a conversation in heaven. In that conversation, God is boasting on Job. Job is just a wonderful, loyal saint. Satan says the only reason he's following you is you give him good things. Take away the good things, he'll stop following you. So Satan's allowed to attack Job. In a series of attacks that are just horrendous, he loses everything. His possessions, his servants, his children. Ten of them die in the same day. He loses then his own health. And in all of that, he doesn't curse God. He doesn't sin against God. But he is in, in great pain, great turmoil. What happens is the story goes on. It talks about how Job and his discouragement, he moves basically to a, a dump, an ash heap. <coughs> and there he is, totally secluded by everybody. But he is just suffering in terrible, terrible, terrible pain, physically as well as emotionally. Three friends come. You see their names here. Eliphaz, Bildad, and so far they come from a long distance, two of them at least, and they come to be an encouragement to him. They sit there for one week. They don't say a word. They're just quiet, sitting, waiting for Job to open his mouth. Job opens his mouth, and when he does, he starts talking about what he's feeling, the turmoil, the trouble, the confusion that he has, how he's wondering why God has done this. And Job is convinced that God has turned against him, but he doesn't know why. His friends and Job then have a series of conversations. One will speak, Job will answer. One will speak, Job will answer. And it covers the bulk of the book of Job. It goes all the way to chapter 37. And in this conversation that his friends give, they are trying to answer the question which nobody has yet fully answered to everyone's satisfaction. Why do sufferings happen? Why do bad things happen to good people? And so that conversation goes, now his three friends, they have a solution. 
They believe with their whole heart the reason that you have all these problems is you have sinned. There's some secret sin in your life. You have done something bad. Job's contention back and forth, back and forth is, I don't know of anything I've done that I haven't confessed. I don't, I'm not harboring anything. There isn't a second lifestyle. There isn't a, a hidden secret sin. And Job just basically says, but I, I, I think God has turned against me. I think that God is for some reason angry with me and I don't know why. And he will, he will say to his friends at times, please show me what I've done. Show me what I've done. God, if I've sinned against you. This is what we talked about last Sunday night. Then please forgive me of my iniquity. Please, please, please forgive me. That's how he ends up chapter 7. And so Job and his friends will go back and forth. And after he says, God, please forgive me, they will say, what? Why do you say that? You know, you don't mean it. Otherwise the troubles would go away. And so Job is very, very down. He's stuck up in this tree of misery and they're going to run him over. One of those who runs him over and really kind of crushes him, even after he says, I am so discouraged, I feel like I want to die to escape it all. One of those who runs over is the second man to speak. Eliphaz, we talked about last week, where he talks. He's the first. He seems to be the leader of the group. And um, then the next to speak is a guy called Bildad. I'm going to call him Bildad the Brutal because of what he says in this text. His speech is shorter, but he's far more blunt. Just absolutely just, he just goes for, you know, for the, you know, the juggler. He is just absolutely brutal in what he says. If you begin with the first couple of verses. Look how he approaches in a brutal fashion. He's just, he's harsh in his attitude and his approach. We read in chapter 8, verse 1. Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long will you speak these things? How long shall the words of your mouth be like a strong wind? Does God pervert judgment? Or does the Almighty pervert justice? If your children have sinned against him, he has cast them away for their transgressions. If you would seek unto God but times or many times and make your supplication to the Almighty, if you were pure and upright, surely now he would awake for thee or come to your, your, your rescue and make the habitation of your righteousness prosperous. Though your beginning was small, yet in your latter end should these diseases greatly increase." For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare yourself, and search out the fathers. For we are but of yesterday, and know nothing, because our days upon earth are a shadow. Shall not they, that is the ancestors, teach thee, and tell thee, and utter words out of their heart? Can the rush, the bulrush, grow up without mire? Can the flag, again talking about those things that grow out of the marsh area, grow without water? Whilst it is yet in its greenness and not cut down, it withereth before any other herb. So are the paths of all those that forsake God or forget God. And the hypocrite's hope shall perish, whose hope shall be cut off, whose trust shall be like a spider's web. He shall lean upon his house and it shall not stand. He shall hold it fast, it shall not endure. He is green before the sun and his branch shoots forth in his garden. His roots are wrapped about a heap and seize the place of stones. And if he destroy him from or dig him up from his place, then it shall deny him, or in other words, it won't take the, the fruit back or the, the gourd back, saying, I have not seen it. Behold, this is the joy of his way, and out of the earth shall others grow. Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help evildoers. Let's just take what we've read so far. Where Eliphaz, or Eliphaz started... And said, you know, Job, you spoke kindly in the past. Job, you were very gracious to other people. You gave a lot of counsel. And then he went on to say, now you need to listen to us. Eliphaz was, was at least tactful. Watch what Bildad did. 
Bildad, as we already read, starts off with a flurry of punches. He just comes at him. He basically, and if you read it, how long will you keep saying this stuff? Your words are like strong winds. You know what he's saying to Job? You're full of hot air. He's basically saying, you're a windbag, Job. What you're saying is just, you know, you're not speaking truthful. Does God, are you saying God perverts his judgment? Are you saying that the Almighty distorts justice? Job, you're a blasphemer. You are, you are denying the greatness of God. And he goes on, he says, if you were pure, if you were upright, God would come to your defense. He would come to you and help you. And then he goes on in a few verses later, he says, here's how the hypocrites shall, shall be. They shall be like the reeds and they, that are pulled out of the water and they die quickly and the gourd that's pulled out of the garden, it doesn't get replaced. You know, and he goes on. He is, in essence, calling Job a hypocrite. He's saying, Job, if you were right with God, like you say, but you're like a hypocrite. You're, you're pulled out of, the, out of the area where you can grow. He, this man is on full force attack. He is coming and, he's, and, and he makes this comment. He says, Job, I want to con- compare your words with the words of the ancients. Your words come out of your mouth. The ancients, when they spoke, it came from the heart. And so he's making this contrast that, Job, you're not as wise as the ancients. You're not as wise as the sages that, you know, some think you to be. He had absolutely no tact. There is no display at all of any pity or sympathy towards Job. None. None. What he does is he comes and he, he attacks. Remember, like last night, or uh, last night, last week we looked at it, and Job says, I'm disappointed in you, my friends. If you go back to chapter 6, you see, I, I wanted from you somebody in my condition. What should he get from his friends? And he says, kindness or pity. And he says, I'm disappointed because you guys don't show me kindness. You are like those wadis in the desert. Those wadis that are dried up that supposedly they, they could give us some satisfaction, but they're none. And Job has already admitted when he started speaking, back in the last conversation, he said, I, I, I know, I, I was rash with my lips. I know that I said some things just kind of quickly out of pure emotion. But Bildad is not giving him any type of leeway. Bildad is not giving him any type of, of sympathy whatsoever. He is just going and saying, you know, you said this. You said this. Bildad kind of reminds me sometimes of me. Where um, I'll get in a conversation. And there will be like, if Deb and I get in a conversation, and she is saying, you know... It seems like you never da 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 da. And instead of listening to the da 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 da, I pick up on one word the never. Or, you know, it seems like every time this happens, da 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 da. And I pick up not on the da 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 da, I pick up with the defensive thing is every time. And says, well, you know what I mean. Well, you said every time. You said never, and just discount where she's coming from by looking at some nuancing of words. Now, I'm so glad none of you would ever do that. You aren't, you aren't like a Bildad, but sometimes I am. And so for me, this was a very challenging text to look at and say, now, wait a minute, what is the approach? Is the approach sometimes understanding where a person is coming from? Hey, this approach that he takes, there is no supplicating at all. There is no prayer. You go through this entire book, 
And you're going to notice something about Job's friends. That there is never any mention of Job's friends praying for Job. Maybe they did during those silent week. But they are, there's no mention. However, there is a mention later in the book about Job praying. And Job is the one who's praying for his friends. It's, it's kind of ironic that these men who come to assist him take no time to pray with him in the middle of his discouragement. They take no time to pray for him, but rather they are quick to attack. They are quick to just turn up the heat. How do you and I treat others who are down? How do we approach individuals who are experiencing pain? How do we handle somebody that asks questions about why is God doing what he's doing? What is our normal response? How do we come? Do we ignore? Do we minimize their pain? Do we say to somebody who is suffering a loss of a loved one, do we walk up to them and say, well, they're in heaven, so you should be glad? That's true. They're in heaven, but there's still pain and agony. Well, you know, your child is sick, and you, you, just, you just need to trust the Lord and just be thankful. And without understanding, where do we show patience towards them? When somebody comes and says, I, I, I feel like I'm never going to pray again. I feel like I'm talking to a brick ceiling, that my prayers aren't going anywhere. Do we extend any type of patience with that individual, or do we respond by slamming them, jumping on them? Do, do we rebuke people quickly, or do we have to make it in a public arena, not in a private? How do you speak to someone when, they, when you think they've done something wrong? How do you talk to your kids when they've done something wrong? How do you talk to your siblings when you think they've done something wrong? Do you quickly chide or do you stop and get some of the facts? And when they speak and give you the facts, do you even listen or is your mind made up? Here he is. Bildad is speaking, but not even in soft tones to somebody that's in pain. He's just bang pow. You know, the punch. Everything is just get him and get him. What about that private moment of pointing out, hey, listen, this shouldn't, this, you, know, you may want to think this through. The problem is we are so media-oriented that we do everything over the Internet, even challenging individuals. And doesn't the Bible say go to them privately? The Internet is not private. Okay? So you talk about, do you, do you give any kind of empathy based upon somebody's feelings and circumstances? Do you pay attention to where they're at? Bildad didn't. Bildad comes, haughty spirit. Bildad comes rushing in like a bull in the proverbial china closet. And he is letting Job have it. And he's giving both barrels. Now, I'm so glad that, again, none of you would ever be like that. None of you would be tempted to ever do that. Or are we? See, the, the challenge from this is God speaks about this attitude. God speaks about this approach multiple times in the New Testament. He talks about if we have a brother or a sister who is in agony, they have a broken bone, they are spiritually struggling, he says it this way. 
If anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual, the word for restore means to set the broken spiritual bones. Now, how do you set that broken bone? Do you go at it harshly or is there some compassion? God says, restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. That is a loving carefulness. That is a firmness. That is a self-control. That is the idea of a meekness. Not in an arrogance, not in an attack mode, but in a gracious understanding trying to help that individual. And he adds this, while keeping an eye on yourself, while watching yourself lest you be tempted, not proud, not arrogant, but cautious and considering, it's that idea that Jesus had that you and I are always so quick to find the little speck in somebody else's eye, but we forget the what? The beam in our own eyes. Paul writes and says, be very, very careful. Be very careful when you're dealing with people who are spiritually hurt. Be very cautious when you're... doesn't mean we shouldn't go to them. doesn't mean we shouldn't confront. But when we do that, we should do it in the right spirit, the right approach. Matthew Henry talks about this idea of being careful. And you've all probably heard of Matthew Henry. He lived in that period of time in the 1600s, 1700s. He would be what we would call a nonconformist in church history, that he was doing independent Bible preaching and teaching contrary to the Church of England at that time. And so he was going out and he was preaching. And he talks about an instance where he was going down, going to meet a group on a Sunday morning and preach to them. And as he was riding his horse headed that way, all of a sudden a band jumped out. And the road robber was masked and he threatened his life and he took what little, little money that he had. And then the bandit went away. Matthew Henry said he thought about that, thought about that, thought about that. And his text that morning was going to be, in everything, give thanks for this is the will of God concerning you in Christ Jesus. And so he paused and he started thinking, okay, in this robbery, and he preached it and he wrote about it later on. What am I thankful for? What am I thankful for in the sense of, of you know, how this relates to my life? He wrote these things. First, I am thankful that I was never robbed before. And then he found another thing to be thankful for, that he took my money and not my life. Then he was thankful for this, that he did not take more. There wasn't a whole lot to give beyond that. And what he did take, it could be easily replaced. But I found the most interesting thing that he wrote about this was what he was thankful for mostly. Lastly, he said this, I'm thankful I was the one robbed, not the one doing the robbing. There go I, but by the... Right? Right? When we go to somebody who is having difficulties, when we go to somebody that, that is struggling with some temptation, some addiction, some spiritual battle, some family difficulty, there go I, but by the grace of Christ. Watch our approach. Watch our attitude. Be cautious in that regard. We read, to go a step further with this, where Paul is writing to Timothy, he says, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents. We stop there. Because it's like, yes, yes, we'll correct people who don't agree with us. The rest of the phrase... Correcting his opponents with gentleness. With gentleness. 
so that God may perhaps grant them. You know what? If we correct people in a flare, in a flurry of punches, what is their natural response going to be? They're going to strike back. Maybe that's what he means about turning the other cheek. That idea that we've got to be a better self-controlled. We need to be gracious in those regards. Not that we ignore and not that we just say, oh, do whatever you want. That, that, that's not true biblically. We need to go. We need to help those who are struggling. We need to set the broken bones. But we need to go with the right attitude, the right spirit. Above all, keep on loving one another earnestly because love covers a multitude of sins. <laughs> I told you the story before about the four preachers who were out on a boat fishing. And one of them got the clever idea, hey, we're friends. Let's, let's, you know, let's pray for one another. And the Bible says that we should confess our faults one to another. So why don't we share what we're struggling with and then we can keep each other in prayer. So the first one says, okay, yeah, okay, that sounds good. I struggle, I drink. My, my parishioners, they don't know anything about but I imbibe sometimes. And, and so in the privacy of my own home, there's sometimes I you know, get potched. The others were kind of like, wow. The next one said, well, I have this problem. I like to gamble. It says, I've gambled quite a bit. I've lost a lot of money. And the others are going, wow. The third one said, you know, my big problem is I just love to try all kinds of stogies. I smoke the different cigars and the different things. And though I preach against it, I do it on a regular basis. And they're all going, wow. And the fourth one, the guy who suggested it, he just smiles. He says, well, my sin, I like to gossip. And I can't wait until I get back to town. <laughs> We don't want to be that way. That's not why we go to people. We don't want to be like Richard III, you know, powerful in battle, who one night when he was out touring and checking out his troops, he was out there investigating and seeing about the upcoming battle. He found one of the soldiers sound asleep there, on watch. So he took out his dagger. He struck the man in the chest, killed him. And he left a note. I found him asleep on his watch. I left him asleep for all eternity. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't do that to his disciples when he left them to watch in the Garden of Gethsemane? Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't do that to us? That our sovereign, when we fail him, he shows us grace and mercy. So Bildad... What can we learn from you? What we can learn is that, you know, we need to be a little bit more careful. And you know what? If we're going to follow the New Testament, we need to be praying for one another, not like a Bildad that just comes and attacks. Because the Bible tells us that, yes, we should confess faults, that we may pray one for another. And in that context, this is where that verse comes up, for the effectual fervent prayer, or the powerful prayer, working prayer, that it works is going to assist if we are praying for one another and caring for one another. Jesus, even by example, says, Peter, I'm praying for you. Satan wants to sift you like wheat, but I'm praying that when you fall, you don't stay fallen. Do you pray? Do you personally pray for brothers, sisters, for in Christ, family members, your spouse, your kids, that when there's a battle, when they're struggling with something, that God would give them victories. That God would help them. But you pray with carefulness. You pray with compassion. And you have the right approach. You have the right attitude. Not Bildad. 
Bildad comes, his attitude and his pro- approach, they're harsh. They're just absolutely harsh. But then he adds to it this idea. His answers to Job's questions, his advice to Job, it is just as harsh. He says several things that we're going to disagree with. The New Testament would disagree with. The Old Testament disagrees with. But he makes some statements that are pretty strong statements that I guess if he were on the internet today, people would believe. If he had an audience, they would listen to him because he sounds so convincing and so adamant and so dogmatic. But is he correct? He makes a statement like this. He says in verse 9, we read it already, where he's making the comment, you go to the fathers. Listen to the ancients. And he gives a reason why we should go to the, the ancients. And listen to him. For we are but of yesterday. In other words, we, we are just here for a short time. And we know nothing. Because our days upon this earth are a shadow. In other words, the only people who really get it are those people who are our ancient ancestors. The fathers. Uh, we hear this in church history. We hear from certain groups that the only ones who understand truth are the church fathers. And so we need to let them be the authority, the traditionalists. We hear this sometimes in our culture. That young people cannot have wisdom, that the only ones with wisdom are the seniors. And we understand there is some value to what, what's being said in that regard. You know, that seniors, be, by life experience, probably can answer some things. I mean, here's the reality. About the time you figured out how to raise kids, the kids are gone. And nobody asks you for advice. You know, we understand that that's a truism. We understand that that's the way it is. But to say, to say that, listen, nobody who is young has any type of wisdom and they can't understand anything, that is just not according to Scripture. That, this, it says, in different passages, it gives the hope that wisdom can be attained by those who are younger. It says, my son, written by an older man to a son, my son, if you will receive my words and treasure my commandments within you, the Lord gives wisdom. Wisdom will enter your heart. Though you are younger, if you go to the word of God and let the word of God, you can have wisdom. He says in Proverbs, and this is wisdom speaking, by me kings, older men reign, by me princes, Younger men can rule. I love those who love me, and those who diligent seek me will find me. He doesn't put an age to it. He is saying in grace and in mercy that God will give wisdom to those who are seeking after. Paul writes to Timothy, says, Let no man despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, conversation, charity, spirit, faith, and purity. Timothy, you're a young man by society's reckoning, but you can have wisdom and be an example. Don't discount yourself because of age. Bildad would have. Bildad would have written you off. Bildad makes another comment. Bildad says all suffering is because of personal sins. He's mentioned that. We've read a couple of them. Job. He had said to Job in verse 8, Job, the reason that you have all this... I'm sorry, verse 6, he says it. Job, if you had been pure, then you, you know, God would be on your behalf and upright as if you're not pure. You sinned. That's why this has all happened to you. That's why you're not prosperous. Then look at verse 4. 
The reason your kids are dead is your kids have sinned. Now that's the encouragement Job needed to hear. That your kids are all wiped out because there's something in their life. In fact, Job, those prayers that you made, they didn't help. They made of no benefit. Because God always punishes. He always disciplines those who do wrong and he does it right away. In verse 7, he makes this comment. He says, though thy beginning was small. He's talking about his illness. Though your illness is small, it's continuing. You are sick because you have sinned. And so he's very harsh with him. He's very pointed with him. And by the way, let's answer the question. Is it true that sickness comes because of sin? Okay. Because sin entered into the world, has all these difficulties entered? Yes. But is it true that everyone who is suffering an illness, you get a head cold? You've got hay fever going this morning? It's because sin in your life. You going to buy that one? Okay. Here's, here's just thought. Abel never sinned. Abel didn't. He offered the right sacrifice. But what happens to Abel? He suffers the ultimate difficulty. His brother kills him. But Abel didn't do wrong. Okay, Joseph of the Old Testament. What did Joseph do wrong that merited his brother selling him? What did Joseph do wrong when he was approached by Potiphar's wife? He ran out of the room. She accuses him of attempted rape. And he ends up in prison for several years because he did what was right. So he tells the dreams to the butler and the baker. And he reveals and he says, remember me, remember me. They forget him. The one who survives forgets him. He ends up being in prison for a longer period of time. Why? Because he did right. Not everybody who has suffered something in this life, some difficulty, is it because of some personal sin and chastisement upon them. We will give you the illustration that Jesus uses. When Jesus is walking through Jerusalem, there's a man who was born blind. His disciples immediately have the same thinking. It wasn't unique to Bildad. Jesus' disciples asked Jesus the question, Who did sin, this man or his parents? And Jesus responds, Neither has this man sinned. Blindness isn't always because of somebody sinning in that family, and therefore somebody struck blind. It it isn't true. Cancer comes just because you have done some sin. It's not true that all of a sudden you have financial problems, you lose your job because you have some sin in your life. It's not true that all of a sudden you studied hard, you studied hard, and you failed the test, therefore God is chastening you. Not every time. Are there such situations? The answer is yes. That's a possibility. But to say dogmatically that I know you have a problem because you sinned, uh, that's why every difficulty, because God only gives good people good things. That's just not Bible. It's not correct. And what about Jesus? Jesus suffered. What sin did Jesus do? The answer is none. None. So Bildad has this idea. That he, and he goes on, he makes another comment. God always gives to every man what he deserves right away. He makes that comment twice in this text. He says in verse 3, does God pervert judgment? Does the Almighty prefer judge justice? 
Verse 20. Behold, listen, this is really important. God will not cast away a perfect man, neither will he help the evildoers. Those are dogmatic statements, but make sure you mark in your Bible they're not true. They're not true. The Bible doesn't support that. And he goes on, he says, well, wait a minute. I know it's true. This is Bildad's argument. This is the gist of the middle of the paragraph. He says, this is the way it is in the past. I just know this is the way it is in the past because I listened to the ancient fathers. Well, the ancient fathers are wrong. This is the way it is in nature. And he goes on in that middle section and he talks about the, those who forget God. They are like, and he gives several illustrations, they are like the reeds that die quickly when they're pulled out of the marsh. They're pulled out of the marsh, they're laid on the bank, and they die quickly. That's like somebody who's a hypocrite. They're pulled out of the, the marsh of life, and they're going to they're gonna have problems. Then he goes on, he says, they're like that, the, a, a spider web. These wicked people, they're like an individual going and leaning upon a spider web. By the way, if you lean on a spider web, so I stand here and I do this and I lean on the pulpit because it's solid. If I were leaning upon a spider web, what would happen to me? Okay, and he says that's the way it is with wicked people. People who do wrong, they always fall down. They're like those who lean on a spider web. They're, they're like those gourds that are planted in a garden and the weeds are, I'm sorry, their, uh, their roots are going and amongst the stones and amongst everything else. But you pull them out. And you lay that gourd and it's vine down and all of a sudden it's going to die. And its roots will not continue and it's going to be replaced. So nature teaches me that God always punishes everyone for their sin right away. And we're going, really? But remember, Job is hurting. Job is listening. He's saying, tell me something that will help me. And so all Bildad is doing is making Job feel really, really guilty over something that he shouldn't. And he ends up saying, God will cast away, you know, he will not cast away those who are upright. You're cast away because you're pulled out of the ground like that gourd. You're like the reed pulled out of the ground because you've done something wrong. And my conclusion is based on nature, Job, you've sinned. And you and I say, wait a minute. Jesus Christ who knew no sin... None at all did he get what he deserved. When Jesus was hanging on the cross, did he deserve to die and to be separated from God the Father? The answer is a blasting loud no. Jesus did not get what he deserved. Jesus hung on the cross he got what he didn't deserve so that we could have what we don't deserve. Jesus hung there and took our sins so that we could become the righteousness of God in him. Do we deserve God's righteousness? Resounding, no. What do we deserve? The wages of sin is death. But we don't die spiritually. Why not? Because the sinless Son of God took upon Him that which He didn't deserve to die in our place. So does God always give to everyone what they deserve? No. What we need to be thankful for and what we need to be mentioning is God gives mercy and grace. Bill, I didn't know that. And so God responds to Bildad and says, 
My wrath is kindled against you and your two friends, Eliphaz. That includes now Bildad and Zophar. For you have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job has spoken. So as you read chapter 8, please mark it down. Bildad's advice stinks. Okay. Yeah, okay, don't use that word. Use something more polite when you read in your Bible. Bildad's, not only is his advice wrong, but so is his approach, his attitude. And so what we walk away from Bildad's story is very clear from us this morning to say, um, you and I don't want to be like a Bildad. We don't want to be brutal that way. We want to be different. If we're going to have one phrase that we want to write down and work on this week, it's this. Magnify mercy. Magnify mercy. <laughs> I was thinking just before this morning while we were, I was setting things up. I'm walking through the foyer, and as I'm walking through the foyer, I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, yeah, several people have asked me, hey, when did we paint the foyer different colors? <laughs> A couple people asked, you know, here uh, this morning again, hey, when did we put a little black box outside the front doors? That little black box has been there, you know, for several days. It was there last weekend. But it is amazing how we get used to things and we don't notice them. By the way, that little black box is not recording everything we do, so if we have an accident, they can check up on us. That little black box outside the front door is the local community. The authorities have said that all the public buildings put a little black box. The master key is by the fire company and the police, comp uh, police department. They can get in there. And inside is one of our keys so that if we have an emergency, they don't have to break through the glass. They can just open that up and get into the building. Smart move. But it's amazing how we walk by things and don't see. But it's there. And it's obvious. We don't see colors change. We don't. Sometimes we get caught up in life so much that we do the routine and we don't notice something that is different or should be different. Some of us are like a Bildad in the way we approach people. And God would have us be different. Be merciful. Be more gracious. God would have us to speak with mercy to others. To curb our bluntness. To make sure that we're like Christ where our words are seasoned with salt. That when we, when we deal with somebody, we're showing mercy. When we're dealing with our kids, we aren't forgetting what's wrong. But as we talk it through, as even we discipline, we are sensing and showing a spirit of mercy a spirit of grace that doesn't mean we don't, we don't correct, doesn't mean there aren't consequences, but our attitude needs to express not anger, not frustration, not the idea of resentment or get rid of them, I don't want to see you, or name-calling or badgering or tearing them apart, but rather we correct with mercy, which is self-control. That's the word for meekness and mercy. Self-control that is dealing with issues in the proper way. Do you speak with mercy? Do you show mercy? Reading an account of a guy by the name of Maverick. The word is in English that somebody that does something that is not the norm. Maverick and his family were involved in some type of, of activities and, and uh, some types of business. And his dad was a public speaker. 
Well, when his dad was doing one of his public speeches at one time, somebody got, stood up in the middle of the auditorium and started yelling at his dad and arguing with his dad, so one of the family members shot him. Not the dad, but shot the man who was arguing. And so this individual, Samuel, decided that, wait a minute, wait, wait, wait a minute, that, that's not how we should be responding. And he did something, he did something that was very abnormal for that community and for his family. He showed mercy. He took the man that was shot by a family member to his own home and nursed the man back to health. And they came into that community that he was a maverick, did something totally contrary. And the word came to be accepted with the idea of doing something that is, that is different. You need to become a maverick compared to the way you normally respond, to show mercy, to be speaking of mercy. Listen, if we're going to talk about mercy, you and I should be speaking of God's mercy on a regular basis. Telling others that God will forgive. That God, yes, there is consequences for sin. But God put it upon his son, Jesus Christ. And his mercies are renewed every morning. That God is a merciful being who will forgive if you come through Jesus Christ. There can be forgiveness. We should be sharing that mercy. We should be sharing that story. <laughs> Somebody illustrated it this way. They said, okay, let's say you're a million dollars in debt. And you're living back a few years ago. You're a million dollars in debt. You aren't paying your debt. So you get hauled off to jail. Now, if you lived a few years ago, who else went to jail with you? Not just you, but your entire family. So you're taken and you're put in jail. But all of a sudden, that person to whom you have this great debt decided to forgive you of your debt, take it off of the books, and you and your family were allowed to leave. That's showing you what? That's mercy. By the way, that's what God has done to you and me. He has erased our sin debt, and we are free to be able to enter into heaven. Does that mean you and I should walk around and say, wasn't I clever to get God to do this for me? Wasn't I a model prisoner? Wasn't I, you know, a nice guy, wasn't I? That's what Paul writes and he says, we should never glory in what we are or have done. The only thing that we should be talking about is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is only by his grace, only by his mercy that we are forgiven. And so when we talk this week in interaction with one another, Let's be merciful. When we talk this week, let's talk about the great mercies and grace of God Almighty. Let's magnify it. Let's talk about it. Let's share it. John Newton, who you all know his story, and you know he wrote that hymn, Amazing Grace, he had been a slave trader. He had been involved with that prior to meeting Jesus Christ. He had been a rebel. Even in his death, he wanted the people to hear about God's grace and mercy. So on his tombstone, he had this written. Clerk, once an infidel, libertine, a servant of slaves. He had been enslaved been himself in Africa. Was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. Grace did not free him to serve no master but a new master. And he wrote that song. 
That song about the mercies of God. That song about the grace of God. That is absolutely amazing. The song that we should be on our lips. That we speak about. That we manifest. That we share with others. That amazing grace of God Almighty. This week, let's portray this amazing grace.